Welcome to the February 11th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today's podcast covers recent research that provides new insights into the treatment of relapsed or refractory acute myeloid leukemia, immune-mediated thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, and sickle cell disease. First, we'll review results of a Phase 1-2 study demonstrating encouraging safety and activity of a CD123-targeted immunotherapy in patients with refractory acute myeloid leukemia. Next, researchers report that in real-world practice, a triplet regimen including caplicizumab improves outcomes and alleviates care burden in patients with immune-mediated thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Finally, we'll review a report that reassuringly shows no increase in risk of infertility among males with sickle cell disease who were treated with hydroxyurea before puberty. Let's start with the article entitled, Flotertuzumab as Salvage Immunotherapy for Refractory Acute Myeloid Leukemia by Joffrey Wee of Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and co-authors. In this clinical research article, the authors report acceptable safety and a clinical benefit for patients with relapsed acute myeloid leukemia who received flotertuzumab, a bispecific antibody that recognizes both CD123 and CD3. CD123 is the alpha chain of the interleukin-3 receptor and is an appealing target in AML, in part because high expression on AML blasts is associated with poor outcomes, according to Dr. Wee and co-authors. Although expression of CD123 is not unique to AML, progenitor, and stem cells, targeting it could nevertheless lead to eradication of stem cell pools, as previous research suggests. Flotertuzumab is a bispecific antibody that targets both CD123 and the epsilon chain of the T-cell antigen, CD3. Preclinical work on flotertuzumab has demonstrated potent killing of CD123-positive AML blasts, both in vitro and in vivo. Accordingly, we and colleagues sought to study the clinical activity of flotertuzumab with a specific focus on the subset of patients with primary induction failure or early relapse groups of patients who have specifically poor prognoses and limited treatment options. The researchers are reporting on a total of 88 patients with relapsed or refractory AML enrolled in a multi-center, open-label Phase 1-2 study, including 50 patients who were treated at the recommended final Phase 2 dose of 500 nanograms per kilogram per day. Of those 50 patients, 30 met criteria for primary induction failure, while the remaining 20 cases had early relapse defined as a relapse within six months of induction. At the recommended phase two dose, 18% of patients had a complete response or complete response with partial hematologic recovery with an overall response rate of 24%. Furthermore, results of a subgroup analysis suggested that flotertuzumab was particularly active in patients with primary induction failure. Among those 30 patients, 26.7% had complete response or complete response with partial hematologic recovery, with an overall response rate of 30%. A bone marrow blast reduction of 50% or more was seen in 43% of patients with primary induction failure, or early relapse, as compared with 14% in patients with late relapse and 30% in patients with prior failure of hypomethylating agents. 
Similar to what has been seen with other bispecific antibodies and CAR T-cell therapies, the most frequent and significant adverse events seen with flotituzumab were infusion-related reaction or cytokine release syndrome. However, most were grade 1 or 2 in severity. Pre-treatment with dexamethasone, temporary dose reductions and interruptions, and prompt tocilizumab use were used to prevent more severe cytokine release syndrome, according to Dr. Wee and co-investigators. This report on flotituzumab is interesting and important, according to Saar Gill of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. In an accompanying commentary, Gill said this study provides one of the first complete datasets of immunotherapy use in AML, aside from studies of allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. However, it may be too early to conclude that there is a biological basis for the apparent increased activity of flotituzumab in the subset of patients with primary induction failure or early relapse. The conclusion may well be that patients with more advanced disease who have failed more lines of therapy are more difficult to treat, which will not come as a surprise to any practicing hemato-oncologist, Dr. Gill said in his commentary. The concept behind flotituzumab a CD3 epsilon and CD123 bispecific drug is similar to that of blinitumumab, a CD3 epsilon and CD19 bispecific T-cell engager, now routinely used in patients with B-cell acute lymphoid leukemia. Blinitumumab appears to have better efficacy and fewer side effects in patients with minimal residual disease as compared to those with active disease, Gill said, which prompts the question of whether that concept would also be true with flotituzumab treatment in AML. Overall, the findings from we and colleagues show that targeting CD123 with flotituzumab is an innovative experimental strategy with acceptable safety and encouraging activity in patients with refractory AML. The clinical trial reported here continues with a focus on subjects with primary induction failure or early relapse, and future studies of this treatment are expected to address assessment of minimal residual disease eradication. Next, let's turn to a research article from investigators in France entitled, A Regimen with Caplicizumab, Immunosuppression and Plasma Exchange Prevents Unfavorable Outcomes in Immune-Mediated TTP. Paul Capo of Assistance Publique, Hôpital de Paris, and co-investigators from the French Reference Center for Thrombotic Microangiopathies report that in a real-world patient cohort, this regimen was effective and reduced healthcare burden as compared to a historical control group. Immune-mediated thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITTP, is characterized by microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, profound thrombocytopenia, and microvascular thrombosis. ITTP is specifically associated with decreased activity of ADAM-TS13, the protease that regulates von Willebrand factor, allowing ITTP to be distinguished from the related thrombotic microangiopathy, hemolytic uremic syndrome. Left untreated, ITTP is almost always fatal. However, prompt diagnosis and treatment allow survival rates of up to 85%. Historically, the standard ITTP treatment consisted of daily therapeutic plasma exchange and steroids, with rituximab added as needed. Caplicizumab, a nanobody that binds to the A1 domain of von Willebrand factor, has been approved for treatment of ITTP in Europe since 2018 and the United States since 2019. Those indications were based on pivotal clinical trial data demonstrating that caplicizumab 
plus standard treatment was safe and resulted in more rapid and durable platelet recovery as compared to patients who received placebo plus standard treatment. However, uncertainties remain about the role of this treatment in the ITTP arsenal, raising the importance of post-marketing studies, according to investigators. Real-world data is beginning to emerge, including a study by Volker and colleagues published in July 2020 in Blood Advances. In that retrospective observational analysis, including 60 patients with ITTP, from 29 medical centers in Germany, investigators said caplicizumab was efficacious independent of timing and ancillary treatment modalities. France was one of the first countries with the Compassionate Use Program for caplicizumab for patients with ITTP, starting in September 2018. Accordingly, COPO and co-investigators had the opportunity to report findings from 90 patients in this program treated with a standard triplet regimen consisting of caplicizumab, therapeutic plasma exchange, and immunosuppression with corticosteroids and rituximab. At the time of ITTP clinical diagnosis, these patients were started on daily plasma exchange, prednisone 1.0 mg per kilogram per day, and caplicizumab at a 10 mg intravenous loading dose followed by daily 10 mg subcutaneous doses, while rituximab 375 mg per meter squared was administered intravenously on day 1, 4, 8, 15 schedule. Caplicizumab could be continued for up to 30 days after cessation of plasma exchange and could be extended until Adams TS13 activity levels improved. Results for these patients were compared with historical data from 180 patients receiving standard frontline treatment consisting of plasma exchange and corticosteroids with rituximab as salvage therapy. The primary outcome, a composite of refractoriness or death within 30 days of diagnosis, was observed in just 2.2% of patients treated according to this triplet regimen as compared to 12.2% in patients in the historical cohort, which was significant with a p-value of 0.01. Moreover, there were fewer episodes of exacerbation with triplet therapy at 3.4% versus 44% for standard therapy in the historical cohort, and the platelet count recovered 1.8 times as rapidly Patients in the triplet therapy cohort had fewer plasma exchange sessions, were administered lower plasma volume, and spent 41% fewer days in the hospital, as compared to the historical cohort. This report by Capo and colleagues provides a strong bridge from clinical trials to clinical practice, according to James George at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center in Oklahoma City. In an accompanying commentary, George noted that to date, Caplicizumab has not been widely accepted as initial treatment, partly since current treatment of ITTP is regarded as effective and familiar. Now based on this report, coupled with the previously reported German retrospective study, he said caplicizumab should be considered for initial treatment. However, cost may be a key reason why caplicizumab is currently not considered for treatment, given that a single 10mg treatment costs $8,000 in the United States which translates into $240,000 for a 30-day course. Capo and co-authors acknowledge that cost is an obstacle in their report. They said medico-economic studies are pending that will address whether caplicizumab-containing regimens are sufficiently superior to the extent that they are also cost-effective. Overall, results of this surveillance study confirm the results of pivotal clinical trials, according to Capo and co-authors. 
who say the Kaplicizumab based triplet regimen prevented unfavorable outcomes and substantially alleviated the burden of care in these real world patients with ITTP. The final study is entitled Effective Hydroxyurea Exposure Before Puberty on Sperm Parameters in Males with Sickle Cell Disease. The lead author is Laurie Joseph of Necker Enfant Malade Hospital in Paris. In this brief report, Joseph and co-authors also in France found no appreciable differences in sperm counts or quality between young males who started hydroxyurea before puberty as compared to those who had not received hydroxyurea at all. Reproductive issues are becoming more important in sickle cell disease as an increasing proportion of patients survive into adulthood. Semen quality is known to be impaired in males with sickle cell disease, usually attributed to hypogonadism, testicular ischemia, or other causes. Hydroxyurea has the potential to impact sperm quality, and sperm banking is recommended in Europe prior to initiation of hydroxyurea, Joseph and colleagues wrote in their report. Clinical practice guidelines in the U.S. and United Kingdom state that children nine months of age and older can be offered hydroxyurea, but treatment is nevertheless a concern for healthcare providers and parents alike due to uncertainty regarding its toxicity with regard to spermatogenesis. With these concerns in mind, Joseph and co-authors sought to analyze sperm parameters in adult males with sickle cell disease who had been exposed to hydroxyurea before puberty compared to those in males with sickle cell disease who were not exposed to hydroxyurea before puberty. Their study included males with sickle cell disease under the age of 25 who underwent sperm banking and semen analysis at one of three major fertility centers in the Paris area. The analysis included a total of 26 sperm samples from 15 patients who were treated with hydroxyurea before puberty and 46 samples from 23 patients who were not treated with hydroxyurea. For the group who had received hydroxyurea before puberty, the median age of hydroxyurea initiation was six years. Investigators found no significant differences in any sperm parameter abnormalities between groups. Sperm counts were low in about 41% of hydroxyurea-exposed patients and 64% of the hydroxyurea-naive patients with a p-value of 0.0625, indicating a lack of significant difference between the two arms. Likewise, sperm concentration was similarly reduced in about 50% and 57% of the hydroxyurea-exposed and naive patients, respectively. The proportion of patients with sperm abnormalities in the hydroxyurea-naive group were in line with values reported in the literature, confirming that spermatogenesis is impaired in males with sickle cell disease at steady state, according to investigators. Although this study is small, the results are important because they may help reassure parents that there is no evidence hydroxyurea treatment would later increase infertility risk in their infant boys. Professor David Rees of King's College Hospital in London said in an accompanying editorial, About 50% of children with sickle cell anemia treated at King's College Hospital receive hydroxyurea, and a substantial proportion of those not receiving it are due to parents' worries about potential toxicity, according to Professor Rees. He said the findings by Joseph and colleagues have the potential to change clinical practice. He wrote in his editorial, These days, Expert opinion does not convince many people to change their behavior, but actual evidence will hopefully be more persuasive. Despite the small sample size in the exploratory study, Joseph and co-authors said that overall, 
Their results indicate an irreversible toxic effect on spermatogenesis is likely not a major concern for boys with sickle cell disease who require hydroxyurea before puberty. That said, a relevant open question is whether hydroxyurea exposure during infancy has negative effects. Given the multiplication of spermatogonia cells between the ages of 12 and 18 months, that mini-puberty period may alter the risk-benefit ratio of hydroxyurea treatment at that age for patients with sickle cell disease who are asymptomatic. You have been listening to Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.